If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. The Guinness Book of World Records would state that Ron Gallagher, as far as we know, has the record for the longest sermon ever preached. 122 hours. This was in 1983 in Virginia, 122 hours. That's just showing off. Can we just all agree that's just showing off? Five days. Now, for those of you who are familiar with God's word, you know Psalm 119 could produce a sermon of that length. Shall we attempt? No. Joan says no. We shall not attempt to beat Ron Gallagher's record. He can keep it. Psalm 119 in the few minutes that we have together this morning is the longest of all psalms, the longest of all chapters in the Bible. We don't know exactly who it was written by. There is no superscription under the title of Psalm 119. But our best guess would be either David or Ezra for a number of different reasons. It is 22 sections, 315 stanzas, 176 verses. In our English Bibles, it's about 2,384 words, given whatever translation you might be using. It would take 15 minutes just to read it. The 119th chapter of the book of Psalms is longer than 30 whole books of the Bible. The length of this psalm should make an impression upon our hearts. If there is anything that God would desire for us to know about, so much so that he would spill all this ink on one theme, what would you think it would be? I think in common modern evangelicalism, we would say it's God's love. He would want us to know how loving he is. Maybe in some Bible-thumping circles, they would want God to know how holy and judgmental and wrathful he is. But if there's one impression that we should take away from Psalm 119, it's that God desires for us to know how precious his word is. To us, Of all the things that he's going to highlight in 176 verses, of all the things in the longest chapter of the Bible, he wants us to know his word is more valuable than anything else that we have at our fingertips. I think God tells us in Psalm 119 that we should prioritize something that we so often fail to prioritize if we're honest. I mean, if we're honest, the majority of us, our our Bibles sit collecting dust. When this psalm would tell us, oh, how precious is the word of God. This psalm is written in a very interesting fashion. As I said, it's 22 sections. Each section is eight verses long, and each section is matched up with a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so each letter begins a section. For instance, in my Bible, and my guess is in your Bible as well, before verse 1, you have the word Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. Maybe some of your Bibles say A-L-E-F. And there's a little squiggly line, kind of looks like an X, like a funky little X. 
that is A in Hebrew. And all of these um, eight verse sections, these 22 eight verse sections, begin with a little heading from that Hebrew letter. Aleph over verse 1, over verse 9, it says Beth. Uh, Technically, we should pronounce it Beit. It just means house. Um, Bethlehem, Beit, uh, is that letter B in the Hebrew. It means house. And Lechem uh, means uh, life. It's the house of of life. It's the house of um, giving life. Uh, Bethlehem is the house of giving life. Um, Gimel over verse 17 and so on and so forth. So the reason why you have those Hebrew letters is because each um, eight verse section that's split up into these 22 sections, it's an acrostic in this psalm that starts every single verse, every single one of the verses in that section begins with that letter. So uh, verses one through eight begin with the letter A, Aleph. In verses 9 through 16, all of those verses, all of those eight lines begin with the letter Bait, the letter B, all the way through. Now, why would you do this? Obviously, there is some uh, poetic scheme to this, and it's beautiful and it's creative. But I think if, if we can, again, take a cue and an impression from this psalm, one of the reasons why I believe that it's written this way and it was composed this way was to help us memorize it and to remember it. Imagine if you were in the B section and you knew that there were eight B's that began eight sentences, eight B words that began eight sentences dealing with the word of God. You would think, okay, blessed, and obviously we're thinking in English now, blessed and um, maybe beautiful and bountifully helped or whatever. We just instinctively think of B and it would help us in memorizing. You see that even in verse 1 of Psalm 119, you know the first word in verse 1. First of all, you know it begins with Aleph. It begins with the A. And we've covered this word three different times on three different occasions over the summer series through the Psalms. The word is Asher, blessed. So the one who would be memorizing this would know there are going to be eight verses with Asher or Aleph. There are going to be eight verses with Bait. There are going to be eight verses with Gimel and so on and so forth. David Livingston you know him, famous missionary, took this to heart. And at the age of nine, he memorized the entire chapter of Psalm 119, all 176 verses. Why? Because he knew the importance of this psalm. When properly read, when properly understood, when properly meditated upon and memorized, it will create in you an appetite for the word of God. And in doing so, it will change your life. Martin Luther says it this way. I've made a covenant with God that he sends me neither visions, dreams, nor even angels. I am well satisfied with the gift of the Holy Scriptures, which give me abundant instruction and all that I need to know, both for this life and for that which is to come. He said that speaking of Psalm 119, saying we have everything we need. The word of God is so precious to us. One last thing to note by way of introduction. There are eight synonyms for Scripture in these verses. Uh, You'll find eight different titles for the Word of God. Number one, you'll find the title Law. It's used 25 different times in Psalm 119. Law, it's the primary term that's used. It's God's instruction. It's God's teaching. This is law. These aren't guidelines. These are laws and rules. Secondly, the word testimonies is used. 
23 times testimonies is used. This is God's witness of himself. He's giving a testimony of who he is, his character, his nature. Number three, the word ordinance is used. It's also used 23 times in these 176 verses. Ordinance comes from the idea of ordained by God and specifically for a purpose. This is a command that is given by God for a purpose to be lived out. We also see number four, precepts, used 21 times. This is an official order from a ruler, a precept that has been given from a ruler or from a king. Fifthly, we see the word statutes, used 21 times, comes from a root word to mean engrave, to engrave something. So these are binding, engraved words of God, declaring the permanent nature of God's word to us. Sixthly, we see that these are commandments. The word commandments shows up 22 times. There is authority in God's word. These are commands. These aren't suggestions. And God ultimately does have a right to give us orders, correct? He commands us. We see the word judgments. Number seven, judgments, used six times. These are just the decisions of an all-wise judge. His judgments. He passes judgments. And finally, number eight, I guess it's unfair to use this. It's kind of defining a word with a word, but the word word or words is used the majority of the time, 41 times. Other than word, obviously law would fall in second place as the primary term, but 41 times the word word or words is used to describe this book. And we have to remember that David or Ezra, the psalmist, is talking about the Old Testament alone. Not even talking about the New Testament yet. He's talking about being enamored by Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and maybe some of the Kings and Chronicles. Maybe a little bit of them. He's talking about being enamored by Leviticus and how amazing it is. That's where our Bible reading plan usually fails in the, in the year, right? About March, you kind of get to Leviticus and go, whoa, slow down. Or just speed up and get through this. God's word is precious, and the psalmist uses eight different synonyms to try and describe how precious the word of God is. Interesting to note, in Psalm 119, the psalmist mentions himself over 300 times in 176 verses. Why? Because he's describing his relationship to the word and the word's relationship to him. But he mentions God every single verse. There is not one verse of the 176 verses that God has not mentioned. So for today, for this morning, since we only have 40 minutes, what we're going to do is look at the first section, the first eight verses. And what we're going to try and do is take a lens and a cue from the first eight verses and see the entirety of the book or of this chapter. We're going to see the entirety of the chapter through the first eight verses. And we're going to do something very different than we normally do. Normally we're turning around to a bunch of different passages. This is what we're going to do. I might quote a couple passages outside of Psalm 119, but we are going to just stay in Psalm 119 because there's enough cross-references dealing with the issues we're talking about in 176 verses that we'll be fine with just staying in Psalm 119. So a little different for us this morning since we can't get through the whole 
chapter. We'll start in verses 1 through 8. Maybe one day down the road we'll actually go through each section and take it as a whole because they are very different and very unique. But I believe that these first eight verses will give us a lens to understand the point and the purpose of Psalm 119. This morning we will see four truths presented in Psalm 119 about the Bible and our relationship to it. Four very simple truths presented in Psalm 119 about the Bible and our relationship to it. The first one is found in verses 1 and 2. And it's very simply this. We need the Bible. The first truth that we need the Bible. We know this from Psalm 119. Verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. If you want to live a life that is blessed, if you want to live a life that God looks upon with favor, then you must have the word of God. If you are going to live blamelessly before God, you must walk in the law of God, so you must have the word of God. To have any kind of relationship or connection with God at all, you must have the Bible. Don Whitney says in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, no spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. If we would know God and be godly, we must know the word of God intimately. Notice in verse 2, the psalmist says, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. So that's his word. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. And we're going to talk about the word observe, but he speaks to the blessedness of those who take careful note of the word of God, right? His testimonies. That's one of the synonyms we saw. And then he says, Who seek his word with all their heart? What does it say? Seek him. How blessed are those who dive into the word of God and observe the word of God who are seeking God with all their heart. Why does he say it that way? I think it's a very helpful synonym and parallel. Pursuing the word of God is pursuing God. If you are to know God and desire to know him more, the place to know him and to have a relationship with him is this book and this book alone. In our culture and in our context, a lot of people think that the way to hear from God or get a word from God is to sit on a mountaintop somewhere and just stare at the flowers and and you'll perceive a sense from God and hear from God and, and know God in a deeper way. Now, can you learn about who God is? Can you enjoy him and have affections for him and be satisfied by him by being out in nature? Absolutely. But is that the primary? Is that the best? Is that the way, the ultimate way that God designed for us to have a relationship with him? No. We even talked about that when we preached through Psalm 19. If all we had was creation, we would know about God, but we wouldn't be able to know God, and thus we would only be condemned in our sins and have no hope for salvation. So the psalmist says, if you are to live a life that is blessed, right? We saw this in Psalm 1, how blessed are those, how blessed is the one, the theme running through The Psalms is the blessed life versus the non-blessed, the cursed life. The one who is blessed is the one whose way is blameless. This does not mean perfect. In fact, the rest of this psalm will say that 
we are struggling to keep the laws of God diligent. We, we desire that our ways would be established, but we keep on slipping and falling. So it's not perfect. It's the New Testament idea of being above reproach. That nobody can pin serious, extreme examples of sin or wickedness. You are struggling just as every other sinner, every other believer still struggles with sin and indwelling sin. But it's not disqualifying sin such as would be seen in Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3 for elders or pastors. It's being above reproach. But the whole point of it, the whole thrust of the psalmist saying that you are blessed if you are blameless is because he's saying the only way you can be blameless and thus blessed is by walking in the law of the Lord. We saw this in Psalm 1, but how many people kick against rules and authority? No one likes it. Nobody enjoys it. Nobody glories or revels in authority. And yet the psalmist says, if you would be blessed and have a life that is filled with joy, you would submit yourself gladly to the law of the Lord. We need the Bible. Now, I I would say it this way. We don't just need the Bible. We need to do what the Bible says. And we're going to get to that as we continue. But that's why the psalmist says, verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies. That word observe, you could literally put there, obey. It's not just read. It's not just know. You remember John 8 when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and the Pharisees say, we know God because we have the word of God. We keep the law. And Jesus says to them, you, you know the law, but you don't know the God of the law because the word of God doesn't dwell in you. There is a way to know God's word without knowing God. We talked about this in Family Bible Hour this morning. The devil knows God's word, and I think he probably knows it better than you and I do. He used it against Adam and Eve in the garden. He used it against Jesus himself in the temptations. So there's a way to know God's word without doing what it says to do. Observing God's word, it's not about accumulating knowledge. It's about doing what God's word says. That's why Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Where does it say this elsewhere in Psalm 119? Let's do this. Let's go to Psalm 119, 135. And remember how I said we're not going to go outside of Psalm 119? So can I do this? Can I just give you the verse number now? Because we know it's going to be Psalm 119. So I'll just say 135 or coming up next is 93, okay? All on the same page. Hopefully we can keep moving that way. Psalm 119, 135. And uh, that'll be the last time I say the chapter because you know where it is. The psalmist writes, make your face shine upon your servant. That sounds relational, right? I want to know you. I want to see you. I want the joy of your blessing. Very much like the covenant that Aaron desired that, oh, that God would make his face to shine upon me. The um, ironic blessing. I want to know you. So, in effect... Teach me your statutes. I want relationship and I want your statutes because keeping your statutes enables me to have a relationship with you. Go to 93. Go to 93. The psalmist says, I will never forget your precepts. That's needing the word of God. I'm not going to forget them. I need them. If I forget them, I will not have life. I will never forget your precepts because... By them, you have revived me. Or really that word restored, you have restored. Not only have you given me salvation 
But as we saw in Psalm 23, as my heart is struggling and despondent and going through trials, you restore my soul. You restore my soul. Go to 47. The psalmist says, I will delight in your commandments. Again, he delights in commands and rules. And he loves them. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate upon all of your statutes. Can I ask you a question? Do you love the word of God? Um, I think that if we think alone, oh, we need it. We will start going to it, crossing off the list. I read it because I know I need it. But we won't foster a love for it. Do you love it the way the psalmist loves the word of God? I'll never forget a video clip that I saw. Uh, It was a tribe in the New Guinea area. It was an unreached people group that did not have the word of God. And they received the word of God for the very first time, translated in their language. And as this box of shrink-wrapped Bibles came to their tribe. They were weeping and dancing and singing and overjoyed that finally they had the Word of God in their language. And they were tearing into it. And when they opened the book, they were pressing their face to it and weeping over it and kissing it. A lot of people might say and have said, even to myself before, you just idolize the Bible. You should love God more And stop idolizing the Bible. Is there such a dichotomy? Is there such a dichotomy to say there's God over here and you can love him or you can love the Bible one or the other? The psalmist says, I love, I I stretch out my hands, I lift my hands to grab hold of your word because by your word I know you. I know you. Can you get into the book without having a connection? Absolutely. And that's why we need to constantly ask the Lord to bless our reading of his word. And we'll continue in that as we go through Psalm 119, uh, verses 1 through 8. What are the blessings? We see blessings found in walking in the Lord. As we know we need the word, we also delight in it. We delight in it because we need it and it's our sustenance, but because it produces something in our lives. Verse 1, it produces blessedness. We are blessed. Verse 2, again, How blessed. So Asher, Asher, verses 1 and 2. How blessed, how blessed. What are some other blessings of abiding in the word of God? Let's just name a couple. Integrity, knowing that you are who you say you are. Devotion to God and a love for him. Obedience to his word. Apart from a life that is controlled and dominated by the word of God, none of our relationships could ever be right. How about verse 5? Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. And then if I keep them, I will not be ashamed. How about that? What a blessing of the word of God. If you keep the word of God, you will never be ashamed. You will always be in the right. You will never be in the wrong. God's word gives light. We sang that earlier from one thirty. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 133 says that it keeps our steps steady and iniquity cannot get dominion over us. 165 says that we will have great peace if we keep our lives according to the word of God. We need the Bible. And once we understand that, we will delight in it because we have it. 
And as we delight in his word, we will grow to know Jesus, to know our Father, our Savior, and our friend all the more. So, number one, we need the Bible. And Psalm 119 is all about that. Number two, verses three through five, and also really verse eight, we need to do what the Bible says. We can't just look at the Bible and think, I've got it, I've read it, I'm good. We need the Bible, but number two, in our relationship with the Bible, we need to let the Bible have authority over us. We need to do what the Bible says to do. There is a pattern in the Psalms of the psalmist resolving in his heart, I will do what you tell me to do. He says, your law I will keep. Even look at verse 3. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Those who walk in his ways do no unrighteousness. Again, it's not saying you're perfect. Number one, you are blameless. You're above reproach, so you still struggle. But number two, really verse three is saying, those who walk in the way of the Lord will do no unrighteousness. If you walk perfectly in the way of the Lord, then you'll be walking perfectly. You will be walking in uprightness of heart. Then he says this, verse four, you have ordained your precepts that we should read them, that we should understand them, that we should enjoy them, that we should turn them into coffee mugs and refrigerator magnets, put them on greeting cards. No, you've given us your precepts. You've ordained your precepts so that we would keep them diligently. That's why God gave us his word, so that we would do it. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your Statute. So again, the psalmist is saying, if this is David, we know David did not keep God's statutes perfectly. We talked about that last week in Psalm 32, that he struggled to keep the word of God. And because he struggled and failed in sin and rape and adultery and murder, he was feeling guilt for his sin. So he's pleading, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. And then verse 8, we see the resolve the promise, if you will. I will keep your statutes. Now, in our relationship with the Lord, a lot of us tend to think, I don't want to make promises like that because number one, I know I can't keep it. So number two, it's very arrogant to say that. God, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And as I said, you will see this as a pattern throughout not only Psalm 119, but throughout the Psalms. I will do what you tell me to do. Tell me and I will do it. A lot of people think that's very arrogant. Making commitments like that, that's very prideful, Patrick. Don't do that. Let me just give you an example. Um, If you're married, you made such an arrogant commitment yourself, right? If you're married, you said, I will love you till death do us part, for better or for worse. You made a resolution. You made a covenant. And I think there's something to be seen in an analogy from marriage you can never be more married than you are the moment that you get married right it's not like hey we're more married now than we ever were no when you're married you're married but you can be closer in your relationship with your spouse yes same thing with god's word those that's what the commitments are there for i will pursue you no matter what i'm going to chase you down and reconcile with you and always be pursuing you because i want a closeness with you i don't want you just be married to you. I want to be close to you, intimate with you. Same thing with being a believer. You can never be more saved than you are the moment you get saved. 
right? You are wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you are saved. So you can never be more saved the moment that you are saved. You're saved. Saved is saved is saved. But you can be closer to the Lord. And that's what these commands are for. That's what these resolutions are for. That's what these promises are made for. I want to keep your statutes. It's not arrogance. It's a pleading for a relational connectivity with the Lord of the universe and saying, I desire to be close to you. So we don't just need the Bible. We need to do what the Bible tells us to do. And God's law has been given to us so that we would be able to know God more. The more we keep his law, the more we obey, the more we know him. And the more we know him, the more we will want to know him. So let's look at this resolve in Psalm 119. Go to 44. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. That's pretty good resolve. Now, we know David didn't, if this is David, even if this is Ezra. We know that you can't, but it's a resolve to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell my heart I need to keep your commands. Go to 105. You know this. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I have sworn, and I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Why? Because it's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Without keeping the word of God, we are walking in darkness. So it's not just that we need the Bible. We need to do what it tells us to do in order to understand the delight that we can have in it. Go to 97. Just a couple of verses back. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Again, knowing that it is a lamp into your feet and a light into your path will bring a love to the word of God. So we need the Bible. We need to do what the Bible tells us to do. It's God's moral direction and we will delight in it when we gain direction from it. And number three... We need to make learning the Bible our highest priority, obviously so. If we need the Bible and we need to do what it tells us to do, then we need to know what it tells us to do. We need to understand it. We need to learn it. We need to make learning the Bible our highest priority. Back in Psalm 119, verse 6, the psalmist says, I will not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments or gaze intently, you could put there. It's not just look. It's dwelling upon the commands of God. I want to dwell upon them. And then, verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. So, I learn them, I gaze upon them with an intent to learn them and to meditate upon them and to have them indwell inside of me so that I will be able to give thanks with uprightness of heart. We need to make learning the Bible our highest priority. Go to 127. Go to 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Above fine gold. He loves the word of God more than fine gold. Or 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil or great bounty or Hitting the jackpot. 
Do you like making money? <laughs> do you like making money? Um, why do we like making money? We like making money so that we can provide for our family and take care of our families. We can provide for the things that we need. And because we know that it produces results that are desirable that we like, we spend time, 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, working so that we can make money, so that we can take care of the things that we desire to take care of. It's, obviously, it's obvious that we value money based on the time that we spend and the energy that we spend working. So you can't tell me that you value something if you don't ultimately put it into your schedule. And when the psalmist says, I love your word more than gold, he says, I will put more attention into it than I put even into my work. You say, well, how is that possible? Work starts early for me. How is that possible? Well, go to 147. I rise before the dawn. Ouch. So dawn, sun's coming up. Sun's not even up yet, but the psalmist is up. I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. No kidding. (laughs) The sun's not up yet. I'm crying for help too. Bring me coffee. Help. What's he saying? I want to know you and without you helping me, I will not know you. I need you to be able to know you. Help me and I will wait for your words. I rise before dawn. I cry for help and I will wait for your words. You say, well, Patrick, I'm not a morning person. Good, I've got you covered. Go to 62. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is morning, noon, night. If you love the word of God, it will become a priority to you and you will spend time in it. Here is a poll from USA Today. It's about 20 years ago, so it's a little outdated, but it's only gotten worse, I would think. It said that 11% of Americans read the Bible every day. It said that more than 50% of Americans read it less than a month or never at all. I think that number's probably gone up. You say, yeah, but that, that's all Americans. That's not Bible-believing Christians. Okay. Barna polled Bible-believing Christians. This was only about a year after this USA Today poll, so it's about 19 years ago, still outdated. It's still probably worse. It said that out of people claiming to be born-again Christians, only 18%, so that's less than two out of every 10, read the Bible every day. And 23% of professing believers never read the Bible at all. Never read it at all. If we were to take that poll at CBC, what would the numbers come out to be for us? Age-old question that's always asked, Patrick, how often should we read the Bible? How often should we read the Bible? I don't want it to be legalistic. Don't give me some crazy thing. How, How often should we read it? So I won't answer. I'll let a very helpful British preacher named John Blanchard answered the question. He says this, Surely we only have to be realistic and honest with ourselves to know how regularly we need to turn to the Bible. How often do we face problems, temptations, and pressures? How often? Every day. Then, how often do we need instruction, guidance, and greater encouragement? Every day. To catch all these needs up into an even greater issue, how often do we need to see the face of God hear his voice, feel his touch, know his power? The answer to all these questions is the same every day. As the American evangelist D.L. Moody put it, 
A man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. As we need it. You say, well, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I I know I need it, but I don't have the time. This is what I would say. Number one, find the time. And number two, make the time. Find the time and make the time. Did you know that because of the Bible being on tape or being on CD, we know how long it takes for somebody to read the Bible straight through from Genesis to Revelation? You know how long it takes? You can read through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in 71 hours. The average person in the U.S. watches that much television in less than two weeks. Again, what's your priority? Now, I'm just as guilty of this. It's easier to watch TV. It's easier to watch a movie. But which ultimately brings the reward? We need the Bible. We need to do what it tells us to do. And therefore, we need to prioritize learning it and diving into it. Here's some encouragement to you. In no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in less than a year. Just 15 minutes. And even if you were to split that up, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for five minutes apiece, you could read through the entire Bible in less than a year. If you wanted to read the Bible only five minutes a day, you would read through the entire Bible in less than three years. So there's many different ways to approach reading the Bible. Find the time, make the time, and then thirdly, make a plan. That's why we have Bible reading plans on the back table for you. That's why we have, I think, 20 or so Bible reading plans on our website, ChristBibleChurchFamily.org. Not all the plans are for everyone. There are some plans where you read 10 chapters in the Bible a day and it takes you 30 to 40 minutes. There are some plans where you read one chapter a day. The bottom line is we need to get into it. Can I give you some encouragement even from our text? Go to verse 11. Again, we know these verses, but let's think of them appropriately with what we're talking about. Your word... I have treasured in my heart. That's what my Bible says. Some of your Bibles might say stored up or hidden. Your words I have treasured, I have stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. What's the point? It takes time to store up something. It takes time. It takes energy. You have to work and you start with very little. And I think if we're honest, that's one of the reasons why we quit so easily. We start storing up God's word and we realize I only have this much. And then we look at somebody who's memorized great portions of the word of God or reads the Bible for five hours a day and we go, well, I'm never going to get there. It takes work to store up. It takes work to learn and to be taught. That's why verse 73 says, help me understand I love, turn to verse 73. I love verse 73. God, your hands made me and you fashioned me. Therefore, you need to give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. God, you made me. You know how I learn. You know how I don't learn. You know how it's a struggle for me to read or internalize or memorize because you are the one that made me. So you help me. God's not out to destroy you. God's not out to make your life difficult. But nothing in this life that's worth having comes easy, right? We know that. So how can we help? 
in learning God's word? How can we help in growing our appetite to desire to learn God's word? Go to verse 63. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. I would say this. If you want to learn God's word, surround yourself with people who love the word of God and will help you love the word of God. Bring godly men and women. Uh, You know those people that you're around that start talking about the Bible and you think, I want to know the Bible like they know the Bible? Get people like them in your life so that you start going, I want to learn. Teach me. I want to read like you're reading the Bible. How do you do that? And I guess the opposite would be true in verse 136. My eyes shed streams of water because they, the unrighteous, do not keep your law. Do you grieve when you see others not keeping the word of God? Does it bother you when people don't keep the word of God? Remind yourself of the truth of God's word and keep it before your eyes. That's what verse 51 says. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O O Lord, and I comfort myself. It's before my eyes. I remember you. There's a great example of this in a book by Robert Sumner called The Wonder of the Word of God. It was a man in Kansas City who was in a severe fire accident and um, lost his hands and um, lost feeling in um, his uh, lips and his face, lost, lost both of his hands and also lost his eyesight. He had just come to Christ in this terrible accident and he was so filled with depression that he wasn't able to read the Word of God anymore because he didn't have eyesight to read. He didn't have eyes to read. Then he heard of somebody who could read the Bible with Braille. Obviously, he couldn't because he lost his hands, but he knew of somebody who could read the Bible with her lips. And so he asked for books of the Bible in Braille to read with his lips, but he found out that the fire damaged his lips too. But as he was trying to figure out if he had feeling in his lips, his tongue started to go across the Braille, And he realized that his tongue had feeling. And so he started reading the Bible with his tongue. No eyes, no hands, no feeling in his lips. And when Robert Sumner had written the book, The Wonder of the Word of God, that man had read through the whole Bible four times using just his tongue. I think you and I have no excuse whatsoever. If a man can read the Bible just using his tongue, then we can discipline ourselves too. So, Can we be honest? I think R.C. Sproul will be honest for us. Here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it's difficult to understand, and it is sometimes. Not so much because it's dull and it's boring, and it can be sometimes. But because it's work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. R.C. Sproul said that. I didn't, so don't get mad at me. Guys, can we be honest and admit that as well? We just are lazy. It's easier to do easier things and put off diving into a book. I think that's one of the reasons why God wrote Revelation in a book. He wrote the revelation of his glory and his personhood in a book because only those who do the work by faith, knowing that it will produce something, will go to the word of God. Those who don't want to work won't go here. So, 
We need God's word. We need to do what God's word says. We need to learn God's word. We need to work hard at cultivating a diligent spirit to learn and internalize and store up God's word. And finally, and number four, and this is the reality in our first section, we need God's grace to make these truths a reality. If the last point just utterly destroyed your soul and you're thinking, I am a terrible failure, I haven't read the Bible in a couple months, and this guy can read the Bible with his tongue, and this is just terrible, I'm doing terrible. The bottom line is you and I alone have no power to glean anything from God's word, none whatsoever. Maybe, if we're honest, that's another reason why we haven't gotten much out of God's word in some of our daily devotions. We need God's grace to make these truths a reality. Back in Psalm 119, verse 8, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Now, this verse needs a little bit of help because it's so stark. I shall keep these. Don't forsake me. The psalmist is not saying, I want to keep your statutes so that you will not forsake me. He's not saying, if I disobey, you will forsake, even though that is true. That's not what these verses are saying. That's not what this sentence is saying. This sentence is saying, I shall keep your statutes if you do not forsake me utterly. Please, if you forsake me, I have no hope of keeping these statutes. But if you are with me every step of the way, I can keep these statutes. He's saying, I need you. I need you. He says this elsewhere. Look at 73. Or we already did. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Look at 18. 18 is a prayer that I pray often. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I need to know your law and you need to open my eyes. I can't open them myself. I believe on the back of your uh, insert in your bulletin, I gave you the IOUs that I um, pray through. Uh, These are from John Piper. They've been very helpful and instructive in my own soul and my own Bible reading. Um, IOUs. I always pray them before um, I go to God's word and I think you should have them. Yes, you have them. Um, I incline my heart to your testimonies, not to sordid gain. Um, uh, oh, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 18, you unite my heart to fear your name. I want to um, have my heart inclined and united with yours. It's so selfish and seeking its own good, and I want it to be united with you. And S, satisfy me in the morning with your testimonies, with your commands. You have all those verses there. That verse uh, 5, when... Um, the psalmist says in 119 verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be established. That, that phrase, oh, that, is one word, and it's used only twice in the Old Testament. Here and one place in Second Kings 5 verse 3, and it's translated, Oh, I wish, I wish. It's a pleading. So before you dive into God's word, stop and pray. Ask God, open my eyes. I need to see you. I will, verse 8, I will consistently keep your commandments if you do not utterly forsake me. I need you. I need you. So, as we close, what can you do this week to cultivate a hunger for God's word? What can you do to cultivate a hunger for God's word? I think you need to understand how amazing it is, what it will produce in you if it does grow its roots deep in you. John Wycliffe Um, great Bible translator of old, said this, God's words will give men new life more than all the other words that are for pleasure. More than any other words that would just be for pleasure. Books, 
movies, music, God's word alone gives life to men. Oh, marvelous power of the divine seed, which overpowers strong men, those men who had been brutalized by sins and departed infinitely far from God. God's word produces salvation and sanctification, right? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Let me ask it this way. If your growth and godliness were measured by the quality of your Bible intake just this last week, what would be the result? What would be the result? How can you grow a hunger? How can you improve your intake of God's word? Just four simple steps. Recognize its benefits. Recognize that it does wonderful things. Embrace God's authority in the commands. Submit yourself to God's commands. Seek God's grace as you try to live them out. And anticipate God's response. He promised those who align themselves with this book will be blessed. Jeffrey Thomas, a Welsh pastor, said a number of years ago, do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It's not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The apostle Peter even said that there were some things hard to understand in the epistles of Paul. It's found in 2 Peter 3.16. I'm glad he wrote those words because I've felt that quite often myself. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Instead, let the word break over your heart and mind again and again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will be some great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So, go on reading until you can read no longer. And then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible, whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Oh, how precious and invaluable is this book. I think the best song that communicates that is a song that we sing often here. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. It's right here in his excellent word. And here's the line that I love the most. What more can he say than to you he has said? Let's not slap God in the face, as it were, by saying, this is great, and thank you so much for preserving this and giving this to me. But I want something more. I want to see you. I want to feel you. I want something... What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? May this, be, may this week be a week that we turn our heart's attention to needing, delighting in, obeying, learning, growing in our study and understanding of God's word and pleading with God to give the grace to make all those things happen. Father, we thank you for your word. We desire for it to have preeminence in our life, that whatever it tells us to do, we would do. When it tells us to move, we would move. 
If it tells us to go or to stay, we would obey. God, we desire for you to reign supreme in our lives, and we know that your word clearly communicates everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what more can you say to us than you've already said? We will run to you for refuge even now. In the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of joy, in the midst of the storm, no matter what you call us to go through, we know you are our strength. You give us aid and you uphold us by your gracious hands. 